Welcome to Voices of Resilience, a special series from the Vital Voices podcast, where we're sharing stories of courage, commitment, innovation, and perseverance from women leaders in unprecedented crisis. I'm your host, Elise Nelson. Today, I'm delighted to be speaking with longtime Vital Voices supporter and now board member, Sherry Rollins-Weston. Sherry's president of Social Impact and Philanthropy for Sesame Workshops, the nonprofit educational organization behind Sesame Street. In her role, Sherry ensures the workshop serves vulnerable children through mass media, target initiatives in the US and around the world. And as COVID-19 keeps schools closed and limits the ways that kids can learn and connect, her work has never been more important. Sherry, thank you so much for joining us. I know how busy you are. Well, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for asking me. So I would love to just start off talking about your work under normal circumstances. I mean, all of us think about Sesame Street, grew up with Sesame Street, as it, as it is in my case. My kids love Sesame Street. But a lot of people think about it as, okay, it's a television program, and they don't recognize that it's actually a nonprofit. And probably, I think, don't understand all of the incredible activism work that you have done around the world. So maybe just to start off with, um, just talk, maybe talk a little bit about some of your recent initiatives um, that you've launched, but more under normal circumstances before you've you all pivoted around COVID. Um, I'd be happy to. I, you know, to your point, I do think Sesame Street is best known as a domestic U.S. television show, and people may love it and they know it's educational, and um, but they often don't know the depth and breadth of our work. And to your point, they don't understand Sesame Workshop, which is the organization that produces Sesame Street around the world, um, was created. 50 years ago is Children's Television Workshop, and it's always been a nonprofit. You know, it, it was created as an experiment to see if television could be used to give less advantaged children the chance to arrive at school ready to learn. And for 50 years, we've been doing just that. And it's no longer, you know, just a television show in the United States. We're in 150 countries. We like, wow. to, say that, we like to say that Sesame Street is now the longest street in the world. And, and in fact, Sesame <laughs> Workshop is the largest informal educator in the world. Um, because we're reaching children around the world, many of whom have no other access to quality early learning. And that's the power of media. Um, the other thing I'll say is that the work I'm most proud of is in many of those countries, rather than just exporting the U.S. version dubbed or um, we are creating local productions where it's the model of Sesame Street, but it's in their language, reflecting their culture, even new Muppets that are designed for children to be able to relate to them, whether that's a little girl named Zari in Afghanistan or a little Muppet named Basma in our Middle East work. And, and I think that is so powerful because we're mm. giving characters um, to children who are powerful role models and we're giving them storylines where they can relate and feel less alone. And, and in answer to your question about former initiatives um, or recent initiatives, you know, we've also had a long history of addressing challenging issues that children face and doing so in a way that's non-threatening. They have these trusted friends, Elmo and Big Bird, and, and we work with local partners to reach children, not just through television or media even, but through direct services, through home visits, through learning centers. And we learn from those partners, what are they struggling with? And that's led to our initiatives around 
homelessness, around foster care, um, most recently parental addiction, because a lot of these issues people don't look at through the lens of a child. And Sesame can give parents and caregivers resources, tools for children to help them feel less alone and strategies to help cope. And that's so important for children who are experiencing traumatic um, events or adverse childhood experiences. Mm. Now you've been at Sesame Workshops quite a while. How long has it been? Um, it's embarrassing because I couldn't possibly be this old and, and I didn't start my career at Sesame, but I've been there over 20 years. <laughs> um, and, and I would imagine not a dull day. And I, I know, you know, when I think about the, the Sesame Street characters that I grew up with, there, as you mentioned, there are many new Muppets and those Muppets, um, yes, represent different cultures, but maybe I'd be so interested in explaining the process of how you decide to create a new Muppet, why um, I feel like the Muppets have, have definitely uh, become more certainly um, uh, ethnically diverse, but also I think, you know, just representing girls empowerment what, what is the thought process behind all of that? Well, it, it always comes out of a specific curricular goal. Um, and you mentioned, yes, girls' empowerment. So in a country like Afghanistan, where girls' education was one of the key goals, you know, that led to creating the first Muppet, um, local Muppet, who was a little girl, Zaria. I mentioned her, where she wears her hijab and her school uniform proudly. When we hmm. were in South Africa, um, and HIV, uh, we're still there, but when we first launched, HIV and AIDS was a huge issue. I think one in seven children was either infected themselves or affected, meaning they had lost a parent to AIDS. And we ended up creating the first ever HIV-positive Muppet, a little Muppet named Cammie. And it was controversial, but it was, it was a it was the first preschool um, curriculum for HIV and AIDS, and it helped break down the stigma. And, mm. you know, I'm, I'm absolutely convinced we've saved lives in South Africa. And, and I mentioned earlier some of our domestic initiatives, parental addiction, foster care. You know, that led to a little Muppet named Carly, because we want to have storylines. And Carly um, was created in the foster care initiative, and she was in foster care. It helped to highlight that issue. And we extended her story when we did parental addiction so that you learn that the reason Carly was in foster care is because her mother struggled with addiction. And this may sound dark, but it's not. We address these issues in a way that brings hope, um, breaks down stigma. And, and probably one of the most powerful examples would be Julia. About now two years ago, three years ago, we created an initiative called See Amazing in all children, which was uh, specifically around autism because one in 54 children in the US now are diagnosed with autism. And that initiative started as storybooks and content for families mm. with children with autism to help them cope, give them tools. But as important, we knew we wanted to help all children have a greater understanding of what autism looks like, about uh, have greater empathy, um, mm. And so Julia was created, the first ever autistic Muppet. And mm. she also came on the show. And, you know, Big Bird can explain that, you know, just because she doesn't look you in the eye doesn't mean she don't want, doesn't want to be your friend. And, and mm. I'm, you know, I'm, you can't imagine the reaction to Julia. Mm. And it's, it's, um, it's really a very powerful, um, rewarding 
you know, um, experience. Mm. Oh, I'll bet. So um, you spearheaded the partnership to create the largest early childhood intervention in the history of humanitarian response to support children in Syria. Can you tell us a little bit more about where, you know, how you developed this idea and, um, you know, just really what motivated you? I mean, it's such a huge undertaking and I would imagine it, it, it took a lot of resources. Talk a little bit about that and also just what the impact's been. Well, I, I'd be delighted. I mean, that, that was one of the most challenging things I think ever, you, you, you know, during that process, um, how all consuming it was, but it originated because as I mentioned, we're always looking at what are the most pressing issues affecting children and can we play a role? Can we help? And so about, you know, now probably four, almost five years ago, it was, you know, we were looking at the Syrian crisis unfolding and the fact that more people were displaced than any other time since World War II, almost half of whom were children. So we, we knew we had to help. And we've had a long history in the Middle East with Arabic content in um, Jordan and Egypt and local productions. So, but we're, but we're not a direct service provider, right? We, I don't go in mm. with my staff on the ground. We're, we're there in production, but not actually serving children directly. So, so I went to the IRC, you know, our staff, my staff pulled together a wonderful analysis. There's so many great organizations working there. And we looked at that, you know, numerous organizations, but we selected the IRC, the International Rescue Committee, because they did focus on early childhood. They cared deeply about research, which is key for us. It's in our DNA. Um, and they were focused exclusively on refugee response. So I went to David Miliband and asked if he would join with us in a pilot. And we went to Istanbul to the first ever World Humanitarian Conference and announced our partnership, which is unusual for us because as a nonprofit and the fact that IRC was a nonprofit, we normally don't announce something if we don't have funding and we had no funding. But we thought, you know, this would be a place to put a stake in the ground and hopefully it would lead to support. And it did. So we raised about $250,000 and we started a pilot with our Arabic content in Jordan, adapting it and doing research to test it with IRC being able to be empowered with this content for um, curriculum, for storybooks, for activities, for home visits, for learning centers. And that's when we heard about MacArthur. And MacArthur announced the first ever $100 million grant called 100 and Change to address a pressing issue of our time. And at Sesame Workshop, we immediately signed up. And then we brainstormed about what should the topic be? What should, what should be the initiative that we, that we um, you know, select? And it seemed to me that our refugee work made the most sense. And so we went to IRC again and said, do you want to join us? And 19 months later, 1904 applicants later, but who's counting? Um, wow. We, we ended up, you know, in the final four and selected. And of course, when you apply, you never dream that that would happen. But to your point, because of MacArthur's audacity and incredible philanthropy, uh, we're in the process of creating the largest early childhood intervention in the history of humanitarian response. And um, what I'm so proud of is, you know, we wanted to create a model that could be replicated, not just for children in the Middle East, but for 
displaced children wherever they may be. And we wanted, and I know MacArthur did too, to, to be transformational. Could this transform humanitarian response? You'll be surprised, but less than 3% of all humanitarian aid goes to education. Mm. Less than 3%. And, and now that these situations are so protracted and so long, if we're not investing yeah. in education, how can these children possibly have a chance to flourish? And, and I'm thrilled because within one calendar year, the Lego Foundation stepped up inspired by MacArthur. They had never done work in the humanitarian space. I mean, they had been a partner and funder of our work in South Africa, but not in crisis settings. And they gave another hundred million to um, deepen our impact, to incorporate learning through play and to expand this initiative to Bangladesh to reach those affected by the Rohingya crisis. So um, it's a huge undertaking, but I think we're changing the world. Mm, wow. You know, Sherry, in my mind, you're, you're doing something even greater than the actual impact on the kids. I think you are raising that awareness because so many people don't realize how much of a child's life they will spend in that refugee camp. You know, they, they may spend, you know, a decade more. Oh, yeah. No, the, and the, the average time now is according to UNHCR, 27 years before um, refugee uh, situations return to home. So, I mean, you, you, you can't imagine. That's where they're growing up. Right, right. Wow. You know, and, and, and certainly I think, you know, everyone thinks, well, you know, just the emergency assistance, the, the food, the shelter, the health care. But it is so true. Generations are lost. And, well, and you're, you're right. That has a long-term impact. It's, it's understandable why less than 3%. When you think about that it was, you know, the humanitarian um, community was used to looking at it as immediate crisis. So, of course, shelter, safety, security, food. But given the length of time today, if we're not investing in education, um, it's, you know, it's it's a tremendous um, failure. And the other thing is, we have so much science today. We have so much research to show that if you reach a child in the first five years of their life, when their brain development is faster than any other time, you can put them on the best trajectory for success long-term. And this is especially true for children in traumatic settings because mm. it's exactly what they need to mitigate the negative impact of trauma. And we know that trauma literally affects the child's healthy brain development. So, you know, these children need these tools more than, you know, ever. And, and you know, are probably some of the most vulnerable children on earth. Mm. Wow. Fact is, if others now understand, to your point, being able to shine a light on not only the need and the void, but also the opportunity, um, you know, we can change humanitarian response so that others look at crisis wherever they are, children in, in conflict settings, in um, displacement, and make sure that we're investing in early childhood as well as um, all of the other, you know, needs. Mm. Obviously now with COVID, speaking of, of trauma, um, it's obviously keeping so many kids home. And I, 
I was just thinking about you in those you know, sort of early days and thinking about, okay, so many kids are going to be out of school. As you said, you know, um, that early childhood brain development is so critical. Now, many children are not going to be getting that, um, you know, I mean, they may be in front of a television, but what kind of television are they consuming? Um, can you talk a little bit about how you shifted your work in, you know, the days after schools began to close? Well, or is it even something you had been planning for? I don't know. You know, had you been thinking, you know, if there is a pandemic and schools are closed or schools are closed for other, you know, natural disasters? Well, I, I think, don't know. If yeah, no, I, I'm happy to address. I think one of the benefits we have is that, um, if you think about it, never has there been a greater um, need for media to reach children. So the, the very reason we were founded to be able to provide quality education to children who didn't have access to school, to children who didn't have the same resources is you know, more needed now than ever. So it really speaks to the power of educational content and reaching children through media when they can't be in a school. And it's not just television, it's WhatsApp, it's YouTube, it's mobile, it's high tech and low tech. I mean, we, we use whatever means to reach children when we, we know where and how they're consuming content. And so we were ideally situated to pivot to just include more content specifically about COVID. And the fact is, and I mentioned with our Sesame Street and Communities program and our humanitarian response work, so both domestic and international, so much of what we do is create content to help children overcome traumatic events and to create content and resources for children, I mean, parents and caregivers to address those. So what could be more traumatic than a global pandemic? So we already have the model and we just immediately pivoted to start creating content that specifically addressed COVID. And, and, you know, it was, we created something called caring for each other, um, which are, as everything we do, they're all free resources. If you, if you go on sesameworkshop.org, bilingual free resources. And it's, it was, you know, with a number of, of goals in mind to, to give children a sense of stability, um, to model healthy ways to handle anxiety and to give parents um, these tools and resources to engage with their children, to let them know that it's okay to talk about this, to show empathy. You know, it's really hard. Um, and we do everything from content around mindfulness, deep breathing, you know, activity. You'll see Elmo teaching you deep breathing exercises. We did a partnership with Headspace with actual, you know, mindful moments with Muppets. And these, you know, materials um, to help children both with their physical and mental health, I think are so valuable. And, and I, I'll have to say, it's not just domestic. It's also, you know, our PSAs around water sanitation and hygiene, which is something we've done. We've done work throughout Sub-Saharan Africa, Nigeria, uh, Bangladesh, India around WASH. And so we've continued to do that. That's more important than ever in the developing world. And I think our PSAs are now in 36 languages in 93 countries. Um, mm. You know, and, and I don't know if anyone saw, but we did a wonderful special called Elmo's Playdate here in the US. And then we've done similar around the world in, 
in uh, the Middle East, we did um, a special with Ahan Sesame, or Ahan Simpson, which means welcome Sesame in Arabic. Um, and it's, we're having to do it virtually. We're having to do it with the Muppeteers in their homes. You know, it looks like a Zoom party, but it helps children, um, you know, reflects their own reality because they're having to do the same. They're not able to be with their friends in person. And again, with, with an additional grant, we're now doing that in five countries around the world. And I, I'm so proud of this work. Hmm. So for so many parents around the country and around the world that are home right now, working hard, trying to balance uh, families, work, homeschooling, if, if it's still going on. My kids actually just ended their their school and now comes the, the really difficult work of what do we do with them for the summer? Um, obviously summer camps, at least here, are all closed, um, rightfully so. It's, uh, it's, a, it, it, it's a difficult state for parents trying to figure out, you know, and yes, as you say, I mean, my kids are of that age where their brain is just exploding and having them just, you know, roaming around in the backyard is not, is not the best option. And so we are really struggling with what, you know, what to do with them. What advice do you have um, for parents? I mean, what is, what is the most important thing we should be prioritizing right now? Um, well, I think, I think the most important thing is to still have quality engagement with children. You know, they learn from engaging with a caring adult. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, that's the most important thing when they're struggling. So, you know, there, there's so many important things, keeping some sense of routine because children thrive in structure. Um, even though we know how hard this is on parents and how anxious parents may be, you really need to be sensitive to the fact that children pick up on your anxiety. And it's up to you to model healthy ways to handle that anxiety. Um, and so continuing to engage, and I know how, how strapped I have so many young staff who are young mothers and ha you know they don't have daycare. You're trying to both work from home and take care of children and it's hard. But making sure that the engagement you have is quality engagement, making sure that you're listening and talking to them, even about tough issues. The most important thing is to be sure that you're um, talking to children about these, that you're showing empathy that it's okay for them to feel sad or disappointed or it's unfair, but we'll be okay. And again, I think the resources we give are hopefully helpful tips for parents and even tools. You know, one of the things I love about Sesame is the fact that it appeals to adults as well as children means that often the content we're creating is not just a tool for the child, but, but a catalyst for engagement between parent and child. And I, you know, you, you mentioned how long I've been at Sesame, but I had this epiphany a few years ago where it dawned on me, Joan Gantz Cooney, this pioneering woman who created Sesame Street 50 years ago, you know, she had a hunch that the learning would be deeper if a parent were watching with a child. And I just, you know, recently thought, you know, God, what prescience she showed, because we now have all the research to show mm. that in fact, that is how a child learns. And that's why she created parodies and humor and included um, celebrities and musicians, because she was trying to make sure it would engage an adult as well. And um, it's why she hired Jim Henson and had Muppets. And I just think how brilliant that was and, and the incredible foresight. Um, and we 
that's a huge asset to us today. Mm. Um, certainly in this, in this, in this country, but certainly globally, against the backdrop of COVID, you know, raging is the, is the um, racial injustices. And how does, how does Sesame Street address that? I mean, it is, I would imagine it weighs heavy on you and, and your team and the content that you create because you are creating that next generation, right? Um, to be, um, you, know, you know, hopefully a different generation, a generation that um, really can see beyond, that can um, really heal some of these, these deep wounds in our society. How do you think about that, particularly against the backdrop of all of what is going on um, in this country right now? Well, we think about it a lot, and, and most recently, it's what we're, we're completely focused on because, you know, Sesame Street was built on diversity and inclusion. It was the first show with a multiracial cast, you know, set on a stoop in Harlem, specifically so children could see themselves and see multiracial um, friends and neighbors all getting along, all coming together, Muppets of all you know, colors, shapes. And so this is huge to us. It's a, it's a huge part of our DNA. And as you say, I mean, there's the famous, um, I think it was Mandela quote who, who talks about, you know, no one's born hating. Mm. They don't no child hates another child because of the color of their skin. They have to learn to hate. And therefore, if we can teach hate, we can teach um, love. And mm. so I, we're in the process now of pulling together so much content that we have over the years around diversity, around inclusion. I'm, I'm, one of my favorite spots I remember was Elma with Whoopi talking about the color of her skin and the color of his fur. And, and so we mm. will now be creating content that will be specifically addressing um, the sort of underlying racism um, and, and the isolation, you know, um, it, it's interesting because we had a, a um, advisory seminar scheduled for tomorrow, believe it or not. And because we're all, everything we do, we start with advisories and we bring people in and we learn from others, even though we have a lot of child development experts um, in house, but we were just about to poke, uh, have an advisory on the issue of sort of um, isolation and the historical trauma around racism and the outcome is racial injustice and it and it confronts privilege and this was literally our next agenda for Sesame Street and communities and we postponed it because of COVID we pivoted immediately to do COVID response and so now we're like okay we were ahead of the curve here but we've got to put this back on the front burner and you know we've we've talked we're, we're convening groups today to figure out what new content we have some beautiful content that we've just put together around coming together, around um, acceptance of, of differences. And so we will be adding this and, and distributing this. And again, it's, it's right in our wheelhouse because it's everything we've ever stood for. And Sesame has always modeled inclusion, acceptance, you know, mutual respect, and obviously there's need for more. Mm. What do you think this this crisis 
has told you, has taught you about leadership? Well, I, I am so fortunate because I am so proud of how Sesame Workshop as an organization has handled this crisis because um, our CEO, Jeff Dunn, we, we have an operations team, a small group that runs the organization, and we meet um, every, every single weekday for several hours, and we have ever since we began the quarantine in March. And he has sent, you know, these really lovely but thorough and thoughtful emails to the entire organization. There's over 400 every single day called State of the Street, where he's sharing our thoughts, what we're doing, how we're responding, um, personal anecdotes, um, updates, and you you can't imagine how much it means to employees. I do little virtual brunches every week with about a dozen um, employees that I don't work with every day. In my division, I have over a hundred and some employees and I'm with my direct reports so often, but not often with others, you know, who don't work with me directly. And I want to make sure I'm still connecting with them and hearing from them and seeing them on Zoom and Teams and, and so that we know what are the high points, what are the low points. And I feel like the organization has done such a great job of staying connected, um, to be there for one another. Um, and we are so laser focused on two things. How, how do we still deliver on our mission, which is more needed than ever? And how do we take care of our people? And I think what I've seen in terms of leadership overall is how critically important communication is. To be mm. transparent, to share the decision-making. You may not agree with the decision, but if you know the thought that went into it, you at least know it's coming from a good place. And I know there are a lot of organizations where that's not the case. And so I'm enormously proud of our leadership, of our CEO, Jeff Dunn in particular, and um, you know, I wish we had the same kind of leadership throughout the country. Mm, yeah, yeah. Well, I have to say, a daily thorough note that is no small feat for a oh, CEO. No, it isn't. It, 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 hey, listen, <laughs> With all the but, other things. But I, I mean, I have, it's so funny because in my staff, these two people are like, it's the highlight of my day. I look so forward to Jeff's email. You know, some have said, we have our own Cuomo. Um, so, you know, and I think Cuomo is another example of what yeah. impressive transparency. You know, people want to know you're being honest with them. This is going to be hard, yeah. but, but we can get through it. And, um, and so I think, communication is one of the most important things. Mm, absolutely. Absolutely. Sherry, thank you so much for spending the time with us today and sharing your insights and letting us into the world of Sesame Street workshops and to know more about what you do and, and all the incredible thought and leadership that goes into it. So thank you so much. Well, Elise, I could say the same back at you and Vital Voices. And I know you feel the way I do, that as hard as this has been, and I don't think I've ever worked longer hours, except for maybe, maybe leading up to that MacArthur grant, but um, <laughs> you know, it, it, it's, it's worth it because we're both organizations where we have the privilege of working for an organization where we're we're mission driven and we believe in what we're doing and we're mm. know we're making a difference and that makes it awfully worthwhile and um, again i'm so honored to be included thanks for listening to the special edition of the vital voices podcast we hope that you're doing all you can to keep yourselves your families your teams and your communities safe and healthy 
If you'd like to support our work with women leaders in this country and around the world, you can donate to Vital Voices on our website at vitalvoices.org. Or you can text VITAL, V-I-T-A-L, to 41444. That's VITAL to 41444. Stay safe and remember that we will get through this unsettling time together.